0: We have in our minds a library of images. It's really not unlike at all what you have on your computer or your smartphone where you scroll through different pictures. In fact, part of that is a a folder of key or very important images, ones that we never lose. I'll give you a quick example of one of mine. I've got an image of my daughter Danielle uh, when she was about five years old. She's dressed in a navy blue jumper suit Her hair was very blonde at that time. It isn't anymore. And I can picture the exact look in her eyes and the smile on her face when she was five years old. That's an image in my mind in this library of images that's permanent. When we look today at the gospel accounts, this is what the gospel authors want to do. They want to share with us words, words that Jesus said and words that were said about him that are really from God to us, and they want to share images with us. Today is Palm Sunday. We'll see why it's called Palm Sunday in a few minutes. Why that word Palm? This is the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. It starts what we call Passion Week, and that culminates in the death of Jesus, his crucifixion, and a few days later, his resurrection. Why is today significant? Meaning, why is his entry into Jerusalem significant? Well, let me get you started on an answer to that, and we'll conclude wrapping up that answer. The Jews of that day thought that there was only one coming of the Messiah, the Messiah being the Savior of Israel. They thought that in that coming, the Messiah would overturn the Roman government and usher in a new world, a return to Eden, so to speak, to the perfection of Eden and the the great communion that people had, Adam and Eve at that time, with God himself. The Jews of his day thought he would come in, overturn Rome, usher in a new world in which every human being was in a completely right relationship with God, every human being that is that believes in the God of the Bible and has responded to God's call, that every one of these people that believe in this God would be in a completely right relationship with each other and that they would live in a world that was free from things like drought. Or disease or death this is what they thought their Messiah would bring this is a problem for the Jews because there's a much deeper problem than things like drought or disease or the occupation of Rome and we'll see what that is later in the service let's look now at Mark chapter 11 let me read to you the first eight verses of Mark 11 now when they this is Jesus and his disciples drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village in front of you. Immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. First thing I want you to see in this account is that Jesus enters Jerusalem from the east. And that's going to be our first image of three images. Jerusalem in the days of Jesus was a walled city. And as a walled city, it had a number of entryways or gates. It actually had 10 of them. So you could enter Jerusalem from any direction, north, south, east, or west. Before we look at the east, which is where Jesus comes from, we're actually going to look at the opposite direction, which is the west. See, at roughly the same time that Jesus entered Jerusalem, the Roman leader of Judea at that time was also entering Jerusalem. Many think the very same day. They both would have arrived several days before Passover, and he would have arrived from the west. This guy's name was Pilate. Pilate lived in a smaller city, smaller than Jerusalem, named Caesarea, so the name Caesar with an E-A on the end, named after the Roman Caesar. Caesarea was a smaller city on the coast, very beautiful city right on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. That's where Pilate lived. However, because Jerusalem was a key city, the key city in Judea, Pilate would travel to Jerusalem about twice a year, and he would always do it at the time of Passover. Now, why would he do it at the time of Passover? He wasn't Jewish, didn't really care about the festival. However, if there was any contingent within the Jewish population that was against Rome, meaning wanting to revolt, Great time for that to do. That would be the Feast of Passover. So think back to the book of Exodus, or think back to that movie, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston or Prince of Egypt or something like that. What happened at Passover? The Jews were in bondage, and they left Egypt. God delivered them out of bondage. So Pilate's coming to Jerusalem, not to celebrate a festival, not to be religious, but to make sure there's no unrest, there's no revolt. So, here's the direction up on the screen that Pilate traveled. He comes from Caesarea, he goes down to a place called Joppa, and he comes from the west into Jerusalem. It was important for Pilate to travel to Jerusalem as a show of power. So he doesn't come alone, he comes with a whole number of Roman soldiers, probably 200, that's the guess that scholars make, to reinforce the soldiers already at the garrison in Jerusalem. This was a way, again, of communicating to the Jewish people, hey, you can have your festival, you can do your religious thing, but there better not be any thought of speaking against the Roman government. Certainly no act like attacking a Roman soldier or some kind of governmental official. All right, let's flip directions. We know that Jesus came from the east, though. How do we know this? Well, one, in the gospel accounts, Jesus is at Jericho first, before he comes to Jerusalem, and Jericho is to the east of Jerusalem. Uh, Second, we read that Jesus went through a very small village called Bethany, and that is two miles to the east of Jerusalem. Let me read that verse for you. This is from Mark chapter 11, verse 1, the very first verse that we read. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So here up on the screen, we're going to add in the route that Jesus took. It's going to be a lot shorter. It's going to be from Jericho to the east into Jerusalem. Jesus would have walked up from Jericho. We say up because it's a rise of about 3,000 feet in elevation. If you've climbed up the sandies, it's not unlike that kind of change. So he's climbing up mountains about 15 miles up a winding mountain road to get to Jerusalem, it would have taken him a whole day. When Jesus gets within sight of Jerusalem, this is what he sees. He sees the temple itself. The temple was situated on the easternmost part of the city of Jerusalem. So if you look at this picture, you see the temple. The temple faces toward the east. So we're toward the east looking at the temple which faces us. You'll see the temple building, it's surrounded by an open courtyard. Then there are colonnaded shaded areas on all four sides. Then there's a wall outside or marking the boundaries of the temple precinct area. And on the east, what we see right in front of us, that's also functioning as the wall of the city of Jerusalem. So in this picture, if you look above the temple, which is toward the west, that's the city of Jerusalem. People live there, businesses are there. Same thing left and right, north and south, that's more the city. But if we were to zoom out, meaning toward the east, there would be countryside. So no houses, no businesses. In fact, if we zoomed out a little bit more, we'd see a garden called Gethsemane and a hill called the Mount of Olives, the place where Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem. Now, Why is this significant that Jesus enters from the east? Well, we don't have time to look at Ezekiel today, but the prophet Ezekiel said that when Messiah comes to save Israel, he will enter from the east. So if there's any question mark in the minds of people of Jesus' day, is he the Messiah? This would be one of those confirmations, one of those checks that says, yes, he does fulfill Old Testament prophecy. There actually is an eastern gate today, and let me show you a picture of what that looks like. This is not the same gate that stood in the days of Jesus. Uh, The Romans came a couple decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the temple stone by stone. They tore down the city walls. This was built by Muslims in the Middle Ages. However, it's over the same place that the former wall stood, And it's over the ruins of the Eastern Gate, and it's built out of the same stone. So there's nothing all that wrong in looking at the Eastern Gate of Jerusalem today, which is what we're seeing, and saying, you know, it would have looked very similar to that in Jesus' day, except that it wouldn't be blocked up. There'd be some wood gates there that you could pass through. So first image I want you to associate with Palm Sunday, Jesus comes from the East. Why is that significant? Ezekiel said that Messiah would come from the East. Here's the second image we're going to talk about. second image is a donkey. You guys will remember this from your old Sunday school lessons on Palm Sunday. Jesus rode the colt of a donkey into Jerusalem, and this is the second verse in Mark chapter 11. Let me read that for you. Start back at verse 1. When they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Untie it and bring it. Now, donkeys were very common animals to ride in the days of Jesus from all economic classes, poor or rich alike. However, there are three things that are very odd about Jesus riding a donkey here. Uh, The first one is that Jesus doesn't ride donkeys. Think about it for a minute. In the gospel accounts, when Jesus travels around, he always walks. Right? It could be 60 miles from the northernmost part of Galilee down to Jerusalem. It might take him three or four days. Jesus walks. He does not ride donkeys. Especially when he only has to walk for two miles, he's riding from Bethany, this little village to the east, up to the wall of Jerusalem, which we just saw a picture of, only two miles. Jesus doesn't ride donkeys. Second, at this point in time, meaning Passover, people don't ride donkeys. Because this is a major Jewish festival, the population of Jerusalem would have swollen by thousands, some say tens of thousands, meaning people are going to make a pilgrimage from their hometowns in other parts of Judea or the Mediterranean world. Jewish people, to Jerusalem. They might very well ride donkeys, but in the last few miles to the city, they get off their donkey and they walk because they're pilgrims, and I guess the thought is it's more meditative to walk and go more slowly and pray and not have the luxury of riding on some animal. So a second reason why it's odd, there's only one guy in a donkey, and it's Jesus. What's the deal? He's approaching the temple within sight of it, and he's still on a donkey. He's not supposed to be doing that if he's a regular human being. Third thing that's odd. If you noticed in verse 2, this is a donkey upon which no one has ever sat. It's very significant. In the ancient world for about a thousand years, kings, not just Jewish kings, but other kings as well, uh, didn't share their donkeys. They didn't sit on used donkeys, so to speak. So you're the first guy sitting on a donkey. I guess it might have been a little bit risky if you get bucked off, but so be it. Maybe somebody trained the donkey ahead of time. But they don't share their donkeys. This is a sign of kingship. And people would have made that link when they heard that and read that Jesus rode that kind of a donkey. So, why is Jesus doing these three odd things? It's all to link with Zechariah chapter 9. Drew read just a little bit of that at the start of our service. Let me read to you two verses out of Zechariah chapter 9. Don't turn there, just listen. This is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous, and having salvation is he. Humble, there's a key word to remember, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah chapter 9 is not just talking about any king of Israel, David, Solomon, Hezekiah. Uh, This is a special king, this is Messiah. How do we know that? In verse 10, at the end of that verse, we read that his rule will go from sea to sea. So this isn't just the land of Israel. It's not just the land of Israel and a couple countries around it. This is the whole world. In fact, this expression that a descendant of David would rule the whole world occurs as a messianic expression several times in Isaiah. It occurs in the book of Micah, and it occurs several times in the book of Psalms. So the Jews would have known this. They would have associated this riding of a donkey In humility from Zechariah with the coming of the Messiah. So, to review, we've got these three odd things. Jesus is riding a donkey. What's up with that? He's riding a donkey at Passover. People don't do that. But it's a donkey upon which no one has ever sat. Ooh, maybe I should start thinking kingship and Zechariah chapter 9. So, there's our second image a donkey. However, it's still a donkey and it's not a horse. So it's an interesting sign. Jesus comes not with weapons, not with soldiers. He's got 12 ragtag disciples uh, who don't know really the first thing about soldiering or politics, right? He comes in a humble way, and he could have come on a horse. They did have horses back then. They've had him for thousands of years at the day of Jesus, just like we have him today. And like today, a horse is better than a donkey. It's more powerful. It's more authoritative. In fact, the Romans, their leaders, always rode horses, never rode donkeys. When Pilate came into Jerusalem with his soldiers, he would have been on a horse. Let me show you a picture of what that would have looked like. Because Pilate comes in to show power and the authority of human beings. So horses were around then, and the Romans always used them. In fact, if you do a Google image search for ancient... Roman statue donkey guess what you'll come up with nothing there's nothing there but search for ancient Roman statue horse and you'll come up with pictures like these so why is Jesus choosing a donkey it's not just to fulfill Zechariah. it's to say something about his first coming because Jesus has two comings and that begins to answer that question the Jews had and the problem they had with his coming Jesus rode not a war horse but a donkey Again, to summarize, in those days, donkeys were very common. Everyone rode them, rich and poor. But it's a little out of place for a king to ride a donkey. It'd be like the president of the United States, and he's driving by himself, what, like a Ford Focus or a Chevy Cavalier? I guess they don't make Cavaliers anymore, but do you get the idea? Why would the president be in a Chevy Cavalier? It doesn't make sense. He needs to be in I don't know, a limousine, or a really pimped-up black Chevy Suburban with tons of CIA gear, something like that. Not a Chevy Cavalier. That would tell you the president is making some kind of statement or there's some deep purpose behind this thing that we're seeing, and there is to this in Jesus' life. So we're done with our two images. Let's go on to our third. How do the people respond? He comes from the east, think Ezekiel. He comes on a donkey, think Zechariah. They lay down palm trees as a kind of paved road for the donkey to walk on, which is our third image, the palm tree. So let me read to you verse 8, just one verse out of Mark chapter 11, the passage that we read earlier. Verse 8, many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. The Gospel of John actually tells us that these leafy branches were palm trees, branches of palm trees. So what's up with that? The palm tree was one of two or three key images or symbols for Israel. That is, the nation, the land, and the people all wrapped up together. I'm gonna try to illustrate this by just using one kind of artifact or thing from the ancient world, ancient coins. We could illustrate it from a number of other purposes, though, including scriptural texts. So let me show you a coin. Uh, this one is an example of a Jewish coin that was minted about 100 years, actually more than 100 years, before the birth of Jesus. So about 130 B.C., before Christ, the Jews were in control of the land, and they minted their own coins for a few years before they got conquered by somebody else. Notice what's on the coin, a palm tree. Why did they pick a palm tree to be a symbol for their people and their land? Well, a couple of guesses here. One is that palm trees in Israel are very green, so they're lower, they're not as high as the palm trees that we stereotypically think of from the Pacific Islands or California. They're shorter, and they've got much more dense foliage, thick green branches. So what does green mean? Water, life, growth. It's a great image for our people. Second, palm trees bear fruit. Again, don't think palm trees in Hawaii Uh, that have coconuts, in Israel, they're dates. And fruit is a good symbol, right? Because once again, we're thinking growth, life, joy. But for whatever reason, the palm tree is a symbol for Israel. Let's look at a second coin. This one is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. About 70 AD, or AD 70, I guess is the right way to word it, the Jews revolt against Rome. takes them a few years, but Rome sends in legions of soldiers to Jerusalem, they destroy Jerusalem, they take down the temple stone by stone, they raise, they level the city walls. And they mint their own coin, the Romans do. They call it the Judea Capta coin, which means Judea captured. Here's a picture of that coin. Look what's on the back side of the coin. We've got a palm tree, symbol of Israel. To the left of the palm tree, we've got a Roman soldier. His helmet is off his head, it's on the ground, his foot's on his helmet. That's a way of saying, the battle's done, we won. I can rest. I don't have to wear my armor anymore. And you'll notice what's to the right of the palm tree, a lady crying. She, like the palm tree, symbolizes Israel or Judea. So she's mourning. Her city, her temple has been destroyed. One more coin. This is from modern Israel, so we fast forward now about 2,000 years to 1948, the reestablishment of the state of Israel. Israel coins a commemorative piece of metal and you'll notice that once again we've got the palm tree, except, and this is actually intentional as uh, as a counter to that Roman coin, we've got a man and a woman, husband and wife, starting a family, planting crops, enjoying the prosperity of the land. So let's go back to Passover at Jesus' time. The people already have palm branches in their hands. I won't go into that, but it's part of Passover that they'd have that as a symbol for Israel. But instead of what would usually happen, all of us are Israel and we're all hoping someday for a better Israel than what we have now, they see Jesus as the coming king. And they give their palm branches to him as a way of saying, You are the true Israel and you will bring about the true Israel. Both of those are true. You are Israel, and you will bring about the true Israel, the Israel we've always dreamed of. The gospel writers are out to show us, all four of these gospel authors, especially in their accounts of the Passion Week, that there are two, not one, comings of Jesus. The first coming, the one they write about, most of what they write about, is not to set the world right in terms of things like drought or disease or occupation from Rome. Those are the immediate things on the minds of the Jews. Maybe today in your minds, the immediate thing is health or I don't have a job, I need a job, or I'm not married, I need a spouse. And you want a savior for those things. Not unlike the Jews saying, we don't want Rome anymore. We want that picture of prosperity for our land. But the coming of Jesus, his first coming, is to answer a need much, much deeper and more permanent than things like disease or occupation. It has to do with sin, separation from God and God's wrath. And so he comes humbly to give his life as a payment for our sins. We sang this earlier, great lyrics. By weakness and defeat, he, Jesus, won the glorious crown Trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. And that's a great, great truth expressed in lyrics that were written in 1838 that we sang today, way over 100 years later. It's been said, and I believe it, that 90% of the deep, painful fears that we have are deep anxieties, our deep distresses, our deep doubts. of those can be taken care of, can be resolved, can be healed by a proper understanding of the first coming of Jesus and a response to that, and his second coming, which we didn't talk about today, and how that affects us right now. Hoping for that, longing for that, believing in that.